so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Thanks, Diana, for reading that. And um, you join us if you're here for the first time as we're going through this series in Acts that we've called Empowered for Mission. And as we've been going through, so far we've seen that um, Acts is about Jesus' continued ministry. Uh, He has his life, his death, and his resurrection, his ascension. Then he sends the Spirit, which empowers his apostles to continue to preach um, the Word of God boldly, as we've been seeing. They are his witnesses. Indeed, all Christians are called to be his witnesses. And so Jesus hasn't finished his ministry, but he's rather continuing it as the gospel is to go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And one of the things we've seen in Acts so far in chapter 2 through to 3 is that we're in the age that Acts would call the age of the Spirit, The age when Jesus, the messianic, that means God's anointed king, is being proclaimed and the apostles are doing signs and wonders. And if you think of Jesus as the king and think of his power and authority and now think of that power and authority given to the disciples and to the apostles, then surely as this mission to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, nothing can stop that. If Jesus is God's king and has all of God's power and all of God's authority, then surely nothing can stop that. And yet as we come into this section, this is a new section in the book of Acts starting in chapter 4 where for the first time we get something which is going to be a consistent feature now for the rest of the book of Acts and indeed the life of the church going forward. And that is opposition. Here in chapter 4 we get opposition from outside the church, from the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish ruling council, wanting the apostles to stop teaching the gospel. Then if you flick over the page in chapter 5, we get Ananias and Sapphira, and ungodliness and deceitfulness happening within the church that threatens the unity of the church. So you get opposition from within, after opposition from without, and then second half of chapter 5, we get persecution, opposition without, again, from the temple authorities, and so it goes on now throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Opposition, persecution, people pushing back on the gospel. And it might be that as you see that, you're thinking, well, what's going on? If Jesus is king, why are we getting this opposition? Uh, Is his power too little? What's going on? It might also, as you read this, be thinking, this is a little bit uncomfortable for us because I suppose in a Western liberal democracy where we have significant religious freedom, which we're hugely grateful for, we might not experience this type of persecution ourselves And in my experience, we're also a little bit awkward about talking about it. Um, We like the idea that all religions, all people of different faiths, and those of no faith would all get along. And so the idea of persecution and the idea of people opposing Jesus Christ is not one that makes us feel very comfortable. It's also uncomfortable, I suppose, because as we look at this, the Bible is very clear that behind this opposition, behind this persecution, is the very real, very tangible threat of the devil, who opposes all that the church stands for and all that God is trying to do in this world. And again, if you're someone who's grown up in Western society, and I'm conscious that we don't have 
um, just people from the West here. We have people who've grown up from different cultures and now living in London. But for some of us who've grown up in the West and breathed in the kind of Western, more secular air, the idea of the devil is, if devil is just quite frankly a bit odd. Uh, maybe laughable, we think of someone with horns and a tail and he's red and we kind of think of Halloween and we're thinking, come on, we're people of enlightenment. We don't really believe that now, do we? Well, no, definitely don't believe that caricature. But do believe, the Bible says, in the personal spiritual force that opposes everything that's good in this world and everything that God stands for in this world, the devil. He is real. Yeah, he doesn't have horns and a pointy tail as the caricatures go. But the Bible would say that you won't make sense of your life in this world and you won't make sense of what's going on in the world unless you believe that there is this personal spiritual force opposing good things and opposing God a work in the world. Not just that, but on a human level, it's worth us reflecting that actually if you want to accomplish anything in life, there is often pushback, a level of persecution. Because to accomplish something in life usually involves moving people from a position where they may be embedded to a new position. And that's what leadership often involves. And so if you want to overcome blind spots, if you want to overcome different people's wrong agendas, if you want to help move people from one position to a different position where it's better, then that always involves dealing with people and dealing with human vulnerability, human sensitivities, and often there's pushback on that. And if we're not prepared to engage with that and deal with that in a gracious and loving way, can I say we won't get very far? Think of Wilberforce in this city. Think of him taking on the transatlantic slave trade. Would he have got very far if the moment there had been pushback from the status quo, from culture at large, he'd said, it's too hard for me, I can't do this? He dealt with significant persecution against his own person and against all that he stood for. But thanks be to God that he pushed on and dealt with it lovingly and graciously and prayerfully. And so we now live in a world where wonderfully the transatlantic slave trade has been abolished because of his endeavors and the endeavors of many like him. Also, talk of persecution might make us feel a bit uncomfortable and might be a bit alien to us today, but can I try and set it in a global perspective? I came across an article in The Spectator back in 2013 called this, The War on Christians, and it had the subheading, The Global Persecution of Churchgoers is the Unreported Catastrophe of Our Time. Let me read an excerpt to you as I try to contextualize this for what is, I know, a global audience here and in this context of us being in a global city. The article wrote this. According to the Pew Forum, that's a research body, between 2006 and 2010, Christians faced some form of discrimination in a staggering total of 139 nations, which is almost three quarters of all countries on earth. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, on average, 100,000 Christians are killed in what the center calls a situation of witness each year for the past decade. That works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for reasons related to their faith. The article went on, in effect the world is witnessing the rise of an entire new generation of Christian martyrs. The carnage is occurring on such a vast scale that it represents not only the most dramatic Christian story of our time, but arguably the premier human rights challenge of our time as well. I mean, that's stark, isn't it? To say that this is one of the biggest news stories unreported of our time, the persecution of the church. To say that the persecution of the church today is going on with such widespread, such deep-rooted vehemence 
that actually it might even make what is going on in Acts look like just a prelude, and that's the world we live in? I wonder, is that the world you're aware of that you're living in? And so as we sit here as global people in a global city, as some of us following Jesus Christ, this sets in context our faith. And this passage is absolutely vital as it sets in context what we can expect if we follow Jesus Christ and how we can cope. And that's what we're going to look at. Verses 1 through to 22, what can we expect? And verses 23 through to, 30, 23 through to 31, how can we cope? Let's look first of all at what we can expect. And look with me at what the apostles experienced before the Jewish council, the senior Jewish council in the temple called the Sanhedrin. The scene, if you were with us last week, is that Peter and John have been entering the temple courts. They're going through the beautiful gate, so-called because of its beautiful, ornate, golden gate, one of the main entranceways into the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And as they go in, they pass a, uh, a lame man. He's been lame since birth. He's about 40 years old. It's astonishing, really, in the ancient world that he was still alive. And he's there begging. And uh, as they look at him, Peter turns to him and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I offer to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And then commands the man to get up, take his mat and walk. And instantaneously, miraculously, the man is healed. And people who are used to seeing this man, see him walking around, no physio, no prolonged recovery. Here he is, just a miraculous intervention. And they're astonished. And in that context, Peter and John do not point to themselves, but they point to Jesus Christ, the one through whom they have performed the miracle, and they proclaim the gospel. Many people start to be interested, some start to commit their lives to Christ, and then we come to verse 2 of chapter 4. This is talking about the priests and the captain of the temple guard. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Why are they greatly disturbed? Well, because a little bit over a month earlier, they are the ones who have been absolutely complicit, some of the driving forces in putting Jesus of Nazareth to death. And now here are members of that small sect cult that they would have thought about, standing up boldly in the heart of Jerusalem, in the temple, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that this miracle has been done in his name, and calling people to believe in him? Of course they're greatly disturbed. This is undoing everything they have tried to do. Notice a few things that are going on here. First of all, notice that the opposition is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ it's focused on that. In other words, it's not focused really on the apostles. The apostles are just the mouthpieces for the gospel, but the attack is focused on Jesus. Look at what they say in verses 17 and 18 over the page. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. In what name? In the name of Jesus Christ. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The persecution is focused on Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. They are the ones who are opposing Jesus. In other words, it may feel very personal sometimes when Christians are persecuted, but can I say this lovingly? It's really not about you. It's about Jesus Christ, the one whom you are representing. That's really important because it's about him just as we proclaim the gospel about him so persecution is against him. It's not primarily about us and against us. I also say this because just occasionally 
in pastoral ministry, I have come up against um, some Christians who, let's just say, are pretty uh, clear that they are being persecuted. And when you actually explore the situation with them, you realize it's not really persecution that's going on here. Rather, they are very awkward individuals who were probably very awkward before the gospel came in their lives. And people have always responded to them in a way that's difficult because they themselves are very difficult people. And they've developed a martyr complex over the period of time. And it's a very convenient excuse to say, I'm being persecuted for my faith. When you really want to lovingly say, brother, sister, sister, you're not being persecuted, you're just being awkward. Can I say, if you have a friend like that, please help them. Please point out the distinction between persecution and being an awkward, angular individual. Please pray for the work of grace in their life. And if you are one of those people, notice the persecution here is not for being difficult as a human being. It's for being persistent in preaching the gospel. It's directed against the gospel. It's directed against Jesus Christ. It's about him. Secondly, notice that they can't deny or stop Jesus Christ's power despite the opposition. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. In the context of persecution, many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. It was 3,000, it's now 5,000, that's 2,000. I didn't say this this morning when I was preaching, but actually, given that's 2,000 men believed, then you can normally associate in that a significant number of women and families as well. So the number would be much, much larger. So in the context of persecution, you're getting explosive growth. It's remarkable. And notice that despite the opposition, those who oppose can't really stop it and can't deny it. Look at verse 14 over the page. Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They can't deny the power of Jesus Christ in the miracle. And look at verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. Do you see the refrain? They can't deny it. They can't deny it. In other words, they would love to deny it, but they can't. Now, I think that's interesting for us because we often think, well, people don't believe the gospel because there's not sufficient evidence. But here they can't deny the evidence and they still don't believe the gospel. In other words, the main reason that people don't believe in Jesus Christ is not a matter primarily of information, that they don't have enough evidence. It's a matter of inclination. They don't want to. Now, if you're someone here today who's looking into the Christian faith, that might be news to you. And of course, we want to give people the opportunity to explore the Christian faith in a relaxed environment where you can ask your questions and acquire new information. But please, can I say to you, don't think you're neutral. You're not neutral, just as none of us are neutral. The gospel is not primarily giving you new news. It's giving you good news, good news that deep down you need to hear because every part of a fiber of our being is opposed to God. And yet God has sent his son to die for us. The problem with us not believing is not more evidence. It's that we don't want to accept the evidence that's right in front of our very eyes. And they can't deny it here. And thirdly, they can't stop the apostles being bold and gracious. How frustrating it must have been for the temple authorities. Look at verse 18. Then they called the apostles in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Look at the poise of Peter here. Peter, who was so timid, but a few days earlier, denying Jesus three times. Look at him in verse 19. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? That is a tough question for a religious leader to answer, isn't it? What is right? Should we listen to man or listen to God? Come on, you know the answer. You're the temple authorities. Of course, listen to God. And then Peter says, 
You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They couldn't even decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. They can't stop it. Notice the grace with which Peter and John respond. They don't fly off the handle. They don't throw insults back at them. They're under intense pressure here. And yet they respond with such poise and grace. And yet, though they are gracious, they are utterly unmoved. You do what you want. You can persecute us. You can shut us in prison. We are going to keep proclaiming the gospel. My mind goes to John Bunyan, who's buried just down the road in Bunhill Fields. He was a tinker. That means he repaired pots and pans by trade. And um, when he became a Christian, he used to use his trade of walking around to proclaim the gospel wherever he went. Of course, he famously wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential books in the British language, even though he's an uneducated man. And as he proclaimed the gospel, he was warned that he was no longer allowed to proclaim it because, and to preach it because he wasn't a licensed preacher to the shame in the Church of England at that time. And so he was put in jail, and the judge said to him, said, well, I want to release you because I don't think you've done that much wrong, but you must not preach the gospel when you're released. You must not. You don't have a license for it. Bunyan stood up, an uneducated man, looked the judge in his eye and said, release me today, I will preach tomorrow. So they put him back in jail, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which became one of the most famous books ever written. You see the gospel? You can't deny it. You can't stop its witnesses from witnessing. Here they are, gracious and firm. To bring it more into the 21st century, a friend of mine, a guy called Ben, who works for an investment bank in the city, he responded in a very similar way. There was a week of events coming up for his church, not here at Inspire St. James, and he decided that what he was going to do was uh, to write a personal note to each person that he worked with who worked in his investment desk and um, include in it a flyer inviting them to the week of events that was coming up. And so he left it on all of their desks so that when they came in in the morning, they'd pick it up and it would have a conversation with them later on that day. HR saw this happening and were outraged that he would do it, particularly when they saw it was a Christian event, and so pulled him in and told him that he was not allowed to be proselytizing at work and he had to go around and collect up all the flyers and all the notes that he left for his colleagues and apologize to each and every one of them. Ben, being gracious did exactly that and went around to each one of them apologizing in turn. They had such respect for him and they were so outraged that HR would treat him that way that it became the talk of the office. And not only did all of his colleagues come along, but many, many more in the office came along to the events as well. You see how the Lord works? You can oppose the gospel. You can push back on Jesus Christ, God's King, but you can't stop it. Shut them in prison they'll just open their mouths. Warn them with violence, they'll respond with the gospel of peace. Tell them that they have no right to be proclaiming it, they'll say, you do what you think is right, we know what is right, we will keep proclaiming the gospel. That is how it works. People oppose and yet the gospel continues to advance by people being gracious but bold. And look, it may well be, as we come to the second part now, that you're looking at that and you're thinking, that's fine, that's for them, that's the apostles, that's for people I read about in books, that's just not me. You don't know me, Pete. I couldn't respond like this. What I want to try to encourage you with is you can, because if you have the Spirit and if you have God's Word, you have all of the same resources that the apostles had, which enabled them to speak and respond in this way. You have every resource they had. And in fact, in this sense, there was nothing remarkable about them. They were just unremarkable people, through whom God did remarkable things. 
Let's look now at verses 23 to 31. How can we cope and be like this? First of all, Scripture's forewarning, and secondly, spiritual power. First of all, Scripture's forewarning. Notice in verse 23 what Peter and John do when they're released. They gather together to pray, verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. And as they pray, where do they go? Well, the quote there from verse 25 is from Psalm 2. Let me read it to you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's a quote from Psalm 2. And do you see how fitting it is? The nations raging against Jesus the king. The kings of the earth rising up against Jesus the king. And the rulers banding together. And what do we have here in Acts chapter 4? We have rulers the temple authorities banding together, coming together and taking their stand. But look, the stand is against the Lord and against his anointed one, his king. They're standing against him. And this is key because what Peter and John are saying is they're saying, we expected this. We weren't caught off guard by this. Psalm 2 prophesied about this. And not just Psalm 2, but there's many prophecies in the Old Testament about God's purposes and God's king being opposed And not just in the Old Testament, but come to the lips of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount after he said the Beatitudes, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says this, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus talks plainly about this. He says persecution will follow it. As soon as you stand for me and proclaim my name, you'll receive persecution. But you're blessed when you do. Rejoice when you do. Not because you love the experience of it, but because you have been counted worthy of being numbered with me. Then Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and see how strong this is. He writes this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a pretty exhaustive category, isn't it? Everyone, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not just anyone outside the Western world, anyone including the Western world. There will be persecution. And here in Acts, the reason Luke is writing this bit of Acts, I'm sure, is to show us what to expect as the church. As we proclaim the gospel, there will be persecution. And please see, it's not just that persecution comes, it's that persecution is an essential way that the gospel grows. So here, Look towards the end, verse 31, right at the end, they spoke the word of God boldly in the context of persecution, as they're empowered by the Spirit, which is all because they have turned in prayer to God. They speak the word of God all the more boldly. Or later in Acts, when Saul attacks the church and the church is scattered through persecution, you know what happens? All the people go from there proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now because they're scattered, they're proclaiming it further and wider. And so the mission of Acts is fulfilled from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. You see, you can oppose God's church, but you can't really properly oppose his purposes. Because as you do, God keeps accomplishing them. I think this is so important for us to get. Do you know that today the country where the gospel is growing the fastest is the country arguably where the persecution is fiercest? Iran? The gospel is growing there at 19.6% a year, and yet there is a statewide prohibition on proclaiming the gospel. How is that? You oppose the gospel, and the gospel keeps growing. This is also important for us to grasp, because 
When you get opposition, you feel like something's gone wrong. You feel like, if only I was more articulate, uh, more winsome, if the events my church put on were better, then there would be some way of proclaiming the gospel and not receiving persecution. Can I say, my friends, that is not the case. You can be as winsome as you like, the events can be as brilliant as you like, but if the gospel is proclaimed, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise in Scripture. It can't be undone. It's so important, because imagine if you want to train for the marathon, and you say to someone, so what should I expect in running a marathon? They say, oh, it's a doddle. It's easy. A, the marathon doesn't hurt. That wall thing you've heard of, total myth. No such thing as the wall. You just run on through. You feel as fresh at mile 24 as you do at mile one. They say, it's a doddle. You say, well, what about the training? I heard that's quite grueling. No, no, no. You don't need to train. Okay, but what about the dietary restrictions? I have to eat carefully, don't I? Watch my weight and watch that I'm eating the right things. No, no, no. Eat whatever you want. Fast food, go for it. You'll be in fantastic shape when you show up on the, on the start line. I mean, if someone says that to you, they're just, they're just lying to you. And so as soon as you start training and you experience some pain, as soon as you feel the need to eat the wrong food afterwards and you do that and then you get injured, or as soon as you start running the marathon and you experience the wall, you're going to give up if you don't have right expectations. But if someone says to you, hey, look, the training is pretty brutal at times. Early mornings, some long runs, there'll need to be sacrifices. What about the food? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the food, you're going to have to watch what you eat, otherwise you're going to get injured. What about the marathon itself? I mean, what about the wall? Oh, the wall, that is hard. So they say, why would I do it? Because it's worth it. Because the joy of getting over the finish line and the experience of running it, there is nothing like it. So yes, it's hard, but I tell you what, it's worth it. Then that will get your support, won't it? That will get you going, I want to do it. And look, Jesus Christ talks plainly to us, church. He says, it's hard. There will be persecution. But here's the thing. He says there's nothing better than being on mission for me. There's nothing more rewarding. There's nothing more magnificent. This is about life and death. This is about people's eternal salvation. This is literally about heaven and hell. You want a life that counts for something? Be on mission with me. There's nothing more important. Is it going to be hard, Jesus? Yeah, it's going to be hard. It might cost you some friends. It might cost you some of your family relationships. Why would I do it then? Because there's nothing more important. So come on, get on mission with me. Are you up for it? You see what he says? He talks plainly about it. And in our Western culture where we idolize comfort, we need these words. Because can I speak plainly? Nothing has been accomplished by someone who lives with the idol of comfort. Nothing. They've never conquered anything. They've never achieved anything. They've just remained on their couches. Do you want a life that counts for something or do you want a life of comfort? A life that counts for something. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So come on, get on mission, Jesus says. It will be hard, there'll be persecution, but I've spoken plainly about it. And not only that, I give you renewed spiritual power to face the persecution. Notice what happens in the context of them praying. Verse 31 After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I was reading a commentary on this by John Starts, a brilliant commentary on Acts, and he says in the commentary, the room was shaken so that the apostles weren't. I love that. They must have felt shaken, right? But when the room was shaken by the Spirit, they were no longer shaken. They were reassured. 
because the gospel was a work in their lives and the spirit was a work in their lives. Now, this is um, showing a, a physical manifestation of them being filled with the Spirit. Just to be clear, they already had the Spirit. The Spirit had already filled them. Can I just speak to that a couple of ways? Every Christian who turns to Christ and trusts in Him has the Spirit and has all of the Spirit. He's not a substance. He's a person. You can't have some of Him and not all of Him. Every Christian has all of the Spirit. Nonetheless, just as you are filled with the Spirit when you become a Christian, you can be filled afresh, as it were. You can be filled multiple times. That's the Bible's way of talking about a renewal of spiritual power in your life. And so the Spirit fills people in Scripture for specific tasks at specific times. Just as Bezalel and Aholiab were filled with the Spirit in Exodus 31 to make the tabernacle, just as Peter and John were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, before they spoke at the Sanhedrin, so they're filled with the Spirit again in verse 31. And so I want to pray for us, and I want you to join with me in praying that we would be filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit for this week as we're empowered on mission. We already have the Spirit, but He can fill us afresh again, empower us again for this work. And so here we are. Ordinary Christians, Peter and John, supernaturally equipped by the Spirit, warned by Scripture there will be persecution, and yet given the Spirit in those moments so they can face the persecution with grace under fire and continue to speak the word boldly. So please don't marvel at them and think they're a breed apart from you. They're not. The best of men and women are only men and women at their best. These are normal human beings, supernaturally empowered, warned by Scripture, and so they do remarkable things. Let me end by telling you the story about a lady that I had the privilege of listening to at a large evangelical gathering in Jakarta a couple of years ago. She's an Iranian Christian. She became a Christian uh, in her early 20s, and having become a Christian, she set about telling the gospel in the context of where she lived in Iran. She would go out to a park with a group of other Christians each day, and she would share the gospel, and many, many people were becoming Christians. Then a number of years ago, the supreme uh, leader of Iran put out an, uh, a decree that no one was allowed to proclaim um, any other faith apart from Islam now, and all Christians who were caught proclaiming the gospel would be thrown in prison. Pretty quickly, there was a statewide persecution. Many of her friends were thrown in prison, and she was contacted by the police and was thrown in prison straight away. There was a brief trial. There was no court of appeal, and she was put in prison. Her first 25 days in prison, she spent in solitary confinement, in a two by one and a half meter cell. She was let out for two and a half hours a day. In total, she spent three years in prison, sometimes being tortured, always being told to renounce her faith. And can I just say that as I sat there with many other people listening to this woman, there was nothing remarkable about her. She was a believer who had followed Jesus' call to proclaim the gospel. She said she was terrified of a time in prison. She said that sometimes she felt like giving up but that God was faithful and he kept her for three years in prison. And when she came out of prison, you know what she started doing again? Went down to that park and started proclaiming the gospel again. Sure, she was trying to be careful, but she kept doing it. And as I listened to that, she finished her testimony by saying these words. I am just an ordinary believer. I am not special in any way. I am not naturally bold or brave, but I am here to tell you that if God has called you to stand or suffer for his name, he will equip and strengthen you. Isn't that an encouragement? You might be saying, I'm no one remarkable. My friend, you're probably not. Neither am I. 
But if you are supernaturally empowered by the Spirit and forewarned by Scripture, who can stop us? So we've got this week ahead of us. What a week we've got. I don't think it will all be plain sailing as we proclaim the gospel through different events. I don't expect that everyone in the community will love it. But only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So let's get out there on mission. Let me lead us in a prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the realism of Scripture. It doesn't pull its punches, and so we can be forewarned and therefore forearmed. And Lord, we pray this afternoon for a fresh filling of your Spirit for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you send us out on mission this week, that you would empower us by the Spirit so that whilst we might be ordinary people, you would do extraordinary things through us. We long for the gospel to ring out here in Clerkenwell and wider in London. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be a work through us and in us to glorify your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for his name that we pray. Amen.